Welcome to Main Street Politics. My name is Daniel Bonham. Special guest here today, shifting gears a little bit. We've had two legislators in a row on the show. And in an effort to engage with you folks out there listening to the podcast and give you some insight into what we're doing here in the Capitol, we brought today the chief clerk, Tim Sikarik, to the podcast. Thank you very much. Glad yeah. to be here. It's exciting to be here. I can tell. Beautiful day outside, and we're sitting inside talking. One of the things I normally do, I do some deep background. I get online. I look people up. I mean, we're like Wikipedia deep sometimes. This time we went Facebook deep mm. so we could get some insight into mm. your life. Tell us about where you were. You were born, it says here, according to Facebook, Kingsville, Texas. Is that correct? That's where I grew up. That's where you grew up. I was born in uh, Barrie, Vermont, which oh, is Barry, Vermont. a relatively small town in and around Montpelier, the state capital. And my father was a college professor. He was a college professor at Goddard College at the time, which, interestingly enough, was the college that Bernie Sanders' wife was the president of. He was a college professor there. He transferred in South Texas. And so when I was about five, maybe six, mm. we moved to Kingsville, Texas, which is on the map because of a place called the King Ranch, which many people know because of the truck. Yeah, the F-150 upgraded styling. That King Ranch yeah. actually exists. And it also has a naval air station and a college campus, which is a branch campus of Texas A&M University. So what did Dad teach? Psychology. Psychology. Yeah, he was a psychology And my mom worked as a secretary. And we lived there for about a decade. And he was older. So he retired. Mandatory retirement age at the time was 67. And he reached that age when we were in Texas. And he retired. He was forced to retire. He didn't want to. I remember one of my earliest sort of memories of politics, actually. There was a famous United States senator by the name of Lloyd Benson, senator from Texas. Mm -hmm. Kind of actually ran for, I think he was on a vice presidential ticket at one point in his career. If I remember, anyway, my first political memory of my life is answering the phone at my parents' house, when I'm my house, Kingsville, Texas, answered the phone, and, and the person wanted to speak to my dad, and I said, well, who's, can I tell him who's calling? And he goes, this is Senator Lloyd Benson. Ooh. Like, he made his own phone calls awesome. in the late 1970s. So yeah. that was like my first brush with, uh, with politics. It's interesting that people in politics, well, I guess that's our first memories, you know, we're interested in this sort of thing, <laughs> but, you know, you see these people on television and you think, it's hard to believe that they're real people. It's hard to believe that that's a human being who, like, talks on the telephone and uh, dials the numbers and does ordinary human things. And when they do, it make, I don't know why it made such an impression. Yeah. But it's always, it's, it's lasted with me, all those moments when I'm in politics and I'm around governors and other kinds of people. And you think they're going to be one thing because they're bigger than life and the way they're portrayed and stuff. But uh, you get to know them and it's a fascinating experience. See, and I go back to my childhood and I say, I remember the first time I saw one of my elementary school teachers at the grocery store. Right. And I was like, what are you doing here? You don't, you know, you don't belong here. You don't shop like a normal human being. You're supposed to be teaching. So, Texas, any, any special thing about growing up in Texas that really impressed you uh, that you were in Texas? Like, do you look back, because you ended up moving to Oregon. You graduated right. from South Salem High. Right. So, looking back, though, what was, what was it about being a Texan, if anything? I did enjoy growing up there. It was an immense sense of freedom. I was a latchkey kid before there was such a thing. It was like you got your bike, and then you, you left when the sun came up, and you got back when the sun went down. And it's a small town, and we were just free-range kids. It was amazing. 
it was a small town too, so we lived right kind of on the edge of town. So you go a couple of blocks in one direction and it's nothing but cactus and scrub brush and you're looking around and you're finding rattlesnakes and you're doing crazy things that parents just don't, wouldn't allow these days. It wouldn't right. happen. Yeah. That was my, those are my memories of my youth, just being free and, and going around doing things that, you know, eight year, 10 year, 12, 13 year olds do. Yeah. So what brought your family to Portland? Like or I said, in Salem. Then my dad retired and was forced to retire. And he had taught summer school at uh, University of Oregon in Eugene. Mm-hmm. Hey, and it's Eugene, Oregon Day here at the Capitol. So yeah, I, uh, I had my Oregon Ducks tie up. So he had taught uh, summer schools uh, classes there. When he was looking forward to a place to retire to, he thought the Willamette Valley was just this fabulous place. He remembered it was so lush and so mm-hmm. green, and that's one thing Texas is not. <laughs> there were mountains and there's oceans nearby. And we drove out here on spring break. It was about this time. It was early in May of 1979. And we were driving from Portland. We had looked for houses in Portland, and we were going to drive to Eugene just to sort of see it. And we pulled off the freeway in Salem, and we got a map of town, and we were looking around. And we were driving through a neighborhood. We went over this hill. We were driving through this neighborhood, and there was these trees, and there was these old quaint houses from the 20s, and it was just so idyllic. And he saw a house for sale by owner, and he knocked on the door, and they had just brought home a baby that had been born that day. So this place was chaos. There was three other kids. There was It was just chaos. And in the moment, I don't know what overcame him, but he bought it. Wow. It's the only thing, impulsive thing I've ever seen him do in my entire life. Yeah. He bought a house. It's like we're moving to Salem, Oregon. Like, we had no family here, no friends here. There's no context to this. Yeah. Here we are. We're, we're picking up from Kingsville, Texas, and moving to Salem, Oregon, which we did, you know, 60 days later. So what year were you were in high school? I this was the right before my freshman year in high school. Okay. So I had just finished whatever that grade is, ninth, in in Texas. Moved to Salem, Oregon to start high school. What a tremendous opportunity your parents presented you with to make some new friends. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> a brand new just company. leave everything I ever knew and you know, no. I um, embraced it as a wonderful adventure and have literally stayed here ever since. I have not moved from the Pacific Northwest. I've had two kids in this in this region, yeah. and I've just and I wanted to stay here for them because I think it is a wonderful place to grow up. And I also just wanted some roots, create my own roots, if you will. And then it was Willamette. So that's right. I went to Whitman College for two years. Okay. And um, moved back to Willamette and went to Willamette University. Got a political science degree as an undergraduate, and befriended a political science professor that was also a law school professor. Mm -hmm. Her name was Susan Leeson. She ended up at some point, I think, being on the state Supreme Court. She encouraged me to go to law school. I didn't know about that, so I lived for a couple of years in downtown Portland and worked for a law firm just doing sort of legal clerk type stuff. Uh, Enjoyed it enough to go to law school. Went back to Willamette for law school. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I was going to go to the big city so I left, uh, I left for Washington State, and I moved to Seattle. Yeah. You went to study political science. Right. So was there something in childhood in Texas, something when you moved here to Salem? Was there something that sparked an interest in politics, or was it an easy major to get? You know, people have all sorts of reasons why they study things. Well, one, political debate just came natural to me. Like, I understood it on a philosophical level admired the sort of effort at democratic self-government, not being told what to do, but deciding for ourselves what's the appropriate thing to do. I thought that was an amazing endeavor, and that Willamette is across the street from the Capitol. I thought that was a 
great experience to learn. So I did intern. I interned in the, in the Oregon State Senate uh, when I was a senior at Willamette, and uh, her name was Nancy Ryle. But that was another amazing you know, political experience where you learned about the intersection between all these forces that are out there and how a human being can try to shape them. And one person uh, can make a difference kind of a thing. I admired, I, I thought Willamette was a well-situated, and of course you go there and you hear about Mark Hatfield and you hear about all the, all the other esteemed people who have been through there, and you, uh, I, I was inspired, to be honest. Well, one of the most fascinating things about your job is you work in the Oregon legislature as the chief clerk. You manage a team that moves all the bills through the process. You make sure that we conduct ourselves the way we're supposed to on the floor, and you're a nonpartisan person in that position. Right. And, and again, I just find that fascinating that here in the midst of absolute partisanship, we count on you to set all that aside and endeavor to just get the process right. Can you talk a little bit about that? I could try. It's not like that everywhere. A lot of chief clerks are appointed by majority parties. Mm-hmm. And I think in a political context, in some ways, it's easier for people to understand what your motivations are if they understand what tribe you belong to. Right. I admire the fact that in Oregon, we're trying to separate the tribes on one level and the process on another. Mm-hmm. And to work in between those two competing political parties and to maintain the integrity of the institution, its processes, its rules, its procedures, I think is an important uh, effort on all of our parts. I I tribute the members for allowing it Mm -hmm. because it's very easy if you have power to just take more. You can justify it if you have the votes. Everything seems to make sense when you're winning. Right. But it seems to have been a value here, and it's, to me, a sincere one, that the majorities want there to be a parliamentarian that will look at things from a political science perspective, not from a perspective of what kind of outcome do you want to see in terms of a vote on a measure or the process for a measure. Yeah, absolutely. But they want the, the process to you know, have, a, have respect for the minority as well. The other thing that I, I just would be remiss if I didn't mention, your staff is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I mean, I absolutely enjoy just even being in your office and the depth of knowledge that they have and the spirit that they bring you know, to Lacey right now, reading the bills. bills, Gosh, you know, what a... And we have my deputy who's been here since 2005 and, like, literally has a photographic memory. An encyclopedia of the building. Yeah, if I want to know anything, I I will go to Obi. And and I think that has helped me be successful. And any kind of credit that you give me, I share with that team. Uh, That team of folks has been seamless. We have transitioned almost 100% of our staff. We have... Obi, who has a lot of institutional memory because he's been around for a long time, but everybody else on yeah. the team is new yeah. in their positions, at least. Um, and so to be able to transition to a, a staff of folks that are committed to the project of you know playing fair by the rules, you know, did you to find the them or did they find you? Well, it's interesting. The process of finding somebody isn't what most people think it is. I actually don't want anybody who has any investment in the outcome of a political debate. <laughs> I don't even like people who know much about politics at all. Yeah. Uh, some of the folks that work for me, one of them was decorating cakes at Safeway. One of them worked at a car dealership. Yeah. You know, these are people in the service industry. 
these are people that know how to be relatable yeah. and that don't know that you're important that treat everybody that way they don't judge who, you know who you are as and, and give you a level of service related to who they esteem you to be they think everybody's sort of the same right and I think that's part of the ethos that we're trying to, to maintain now and I, I and I do think it speaks volumes too when when we have our first day in session and we elect a speaker in the speaker pro tempore and we elect the chief clerk that it's unanimous and unanimous with enthusiasm not like oh we only have one choice you know that we've reluctantly cast this vote no I, everybody agrees that that office and you specifically you're doing a fantastic job so thank you sincerely thank you for what you're doing uh let's go back though to college because oh. you were telling me a little bit before we got online here about a college roommate that i, I thought this was fascinating was it a roommate, a friend, debate team? This was my high school. High school. This was my high school oh, because, because yes, I was a debate nerd when I was in high school. Now, say that. What was that? Are you kind of shying away from the microphone there? I let's get closer to the mic. Okay, I was a debate <laughs> nerd in high school. I'll admit it. That was my um, athletic achievement. I was one of, the, I was one of the people who was cut from a volunteer soccer team. That was my my athletic. chief of staff, Dylan, who was also engaged in debate, uh, also coach debate. I mean, so this is near and dear to this office's mm -hmm. heart. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad that you participated. Right. I did. I participated. I wasn't the smartest member of my own little team, however. My team partner in debate was the smartest kid in school. He was doing calculus when he was a freshman, that kind of guy. Got his perfect score on the SAT, the only person in the school to do that. And uh, went on to Princeton University and Oxford, he became a nationally renowned physicist, astronomer, discovered the largest, oldest star in the universe or something like that, uh, ends up in Santa Cruz, California. And uh, when I moved back to Salem, Oregon, he had been um, named president of Willamette University. No kidding. So it's a small state. It can be a very small state at times. And I love that about it. Yeah, that's awesome. Pivot one more time. Back to my personal experience coming into this building. So I was appointed middle of a term with a short session on the horizon. The office, the staff made me feel right at home, got me everything I needed and put me through an orientation process. Really gave me a window into what life was going to be like as a legislator. And then again, coming back this year as a quasi freshman, went through it again. And again, to see the care and the attention to detail and the process that you put us through to allow us to try and get out of the starting blocks as fast as possible. How has that developed over the years? Uh, what do you think the, mm. the role is to, to get people up and going? Sensitive subject, because in my estimation, we don't do enough. Mm. I mean, it's to your credit, I think, that you wanted to participate in that and believe it or not, it's our opinion that our efforts to do that are very important. I think that the more you're here, the more important you realize it all is, is to know not necessarily what your political ideology is, but how to implement that when you're here, who to call, who fixes what, where do you get the money to pay for the staff, those kinds of things about how to do the job. It's interesting we spend almost no time talking about that. And yet, this is an industry, this is a profession. There are people, associations, there are processes in the building and rules that matter if you know the details that make you effective or can thwart you. 
And yet we have a hard time getting people to pay attention to that. Now, obviously, right after an election, people want to celebrate. They want to feel, you know, like go off to you know, have a vacation and take a break before the big things begin. But I wish we did more. And I know other states have done more. They yeah. spend four days and sometimes a week doing things. So we could do a, probably a better job of that. Well, I know in this long session, after this most recent election, I came back and I said, what about training that involves the vice chairs? And you immediately made it happen. Like, it was just an idea. And you were like, it was a good it. one. On it, got us in there. Uh, people were very appreciative of it. For me, as somebody trying to do what you're saying, be an effective legislator, re represent my district well, and, and to try and move some legislation and participate in the process, to know the process is so important. And so I, I just, for one, again, want to say thank you and, and applaud what you have well, done. Welcome. And I do. I'm with you. I hope we can find a way to continue to grow that and, and engage that. Well, your idea, that vice chair idea, uh, was a good one. It was something that we pounced on, of course, because when somebody expresses an interest, uh, we're going to tap into that. I think we build upon that. Rather than trying to convince people they really ought to know something, answer the questions that they have. Um, we put that together on the, sp on the fly, and I think we could do a better job of it. And, it. and the interesting thing about that is it starts to break down barriers that exist elsewhere in the process. So now the committee chairs think, about the job they were doing to engage with their vice chairs. The staff sees the vice chairs being valued, and they might have a different attitude or perspective upon what that relationship needs to look like and how it can be made better in the future. So all kinds of things can come from those ideas. I love good ideas. I love an, I'm an idea person, and it drives people crazy around here a little bit because I do have a great staff, and the job is being done, yeah. and that leaves me free to kind of think up crazy schemes, like let's do something this interim. Let's have another training. Let's bring in guest speakers. Let's do, make, it, make the most of this opportunity. I love ideas. So you were a, a law student, mm -hmm. and you thought, oh, my gosh, now that I have my law degree, I really want to be the chief clerk in the Oregon legislature someday. Oh, heck no. I was going to go to Seattle, and I was going to get a house on the lake with a boat, and I'd be sitting on my deck looking at the sunset, counting, you know, my bank account. Right, that was the that's the idea behind getting a law degree. No, actually, that uh, I went to law school, and I was the guy in law school where everybody's pens hit the table when he started to ask questions because I'm so much more interested in the theory behind things. I was a very, um, I wasn't very interested in process and you know the whole idea of billing clients. So when I graduated from law school, I did want to go to the big city. It was right in the middle of this horrendous recession in the early 1990s, mm -hmm. it was a horrendous recession. The law firm that I worked at in Portland was actually downsizing. So I kind of thought I was smart, right? I had an in at a law firm in Portland. I was going to go to law school, go back there to work, and we'll see what happens. Well, they didn't have a position. They were letting people go. I moved to Seattle where there was more, just more of everything. And while I was waiting to pass the bar, I took a job working for a state senator. I didn't know that that was going to be the way my career went, but I thought, what the heck, a few thousand dollars a month? answering the phones and emails, or there wasn't even emails, by the way, at the time, was, was better than no $1,000 a month. 
So I'll take it and I'll use it as a stepping stone because one thing leads to another, right? Well, I loved it. Yeah. I love the people. I love the relational things that are going on. I love the intersection between guns and, and you know, all these debates that were going on because, again, I was a debater. And I could see both sides of the issue. And I was like, oh, that's a clever idea. Or, and I admired some of the people that were involved in it um, because of their just their ability to move within the that's the circle of this like what can be a really tense emotion packed yeah. thing i mean the yeah, whole building so, yeah. today was rocking because the teachers were here mm-hmm. and the walls were just shaking and i just think that level of energy when you can navigate that is an impressive feat so i stayed uh, i passed the bar and the caucus office in washington state in the washington state senate the partisan caucus office said, why are you working as a legislative assistant? Why don't you, we have a position that's come open, why don't you work with us? So I did that for four years. And to be honest, I learned that that really wasn't my calling. Now, was that more policy work or was that political work or was it both? It was kind of both okay. because uh, it was a partisan office. Yeah. It was a partisan office in Washington that they kind of have here, but it's much larger there. They have attorneys and communication staffs and they would probably each caucus up there has probably 25 employees, and oh, I think wow. in yeah. Oregon you have five, seven, maybe. Yeah. So it's huge there, and I, it wasn't a great fit for me. So I went to work as the legislative director of their Department of Revenue, and that was good for a few years. And I enjoyed working in the legislative process instead of the executive branch. And then the clerk of the Washington State House had a position as their general legal counsel, and said. We'd be interested in having you do that. And it's a nonpartisan position, and you'll be doing stuff with all of our members. And, and I took that position. I held it for 14 years. And that's the job that I had when I took the job here took as the a job clerk. Here. So growing up, though, I want to go back to this because, again, this is an offline conversation that I wish we had recorded because I was fascinated mm. by it. You know, mom and dad were politically, mm. ideologically aligned. No, they were the political polar opposites, the Carvel and uh, Mary Madeline of whatever. Yeah. Of uh, my mother, who's still alive, uh, is a hardcore liberal Democrat, all that, MSNBC, the whole nine yards. And my father, who's passed, was, well, they don't even have a John Birch Society anymore. I don't know what anybody would even know what that reference was to, but. You could say he was a Trumper before there was one. Yeah. You know, like that didn't exist then, but you know, he was as conservative as they come, which is interesting for a college psychology professor anyway. So there was a lot of weird stuff going on in my family. Um, and like I said, the dinner table conversations were like a tennis match when they would, you know, debate the news. No, I didn't ask you this earlier. Siblings? No siblings. I'm an only child. Only child. Yeah. Okay. My parents had me later in their lives. It just didn't come to be that I had a sibling. I think about what you must have witnessed, you know, having been up in uh, the Washington legislature working, uh, albeit in a partisan office, and then coming here being nonpartisan, like what in your mind, or who, I guess rather, is the ideal legislator? Who is sitting at home that should think, this is me, or a young person that thinks, I want to grow up to do that? You know, who, what character traits should these folks have? What interests should they have? What I've seen that makes me wonder how things are going to evolve is that the process has become so focused on winning elections, and winning elections takes money, that I think that breeds a certain type of a personality. And that 
when you have, when your focus is on those kinds of things, you have a different perspective on what it's like to do the job of like coming to terms with the, with, with language you don't really like, but you're going to have to vote for it because there's a few things you do like about it. And I think there's different personalities that can come from those different environments. Me being a political science major, it should probably come as no surprise that I like practical minded folk, yeah. which is different from when I was a kid. And I thought the problem was people didn't have any passion and all this gobbledygook and compromise was just a bunch of watered down nonsense. Now that I've been involved in it for 25 years, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And you have to have relationships that stand the test of time because yeah. the, as you grow in your knowledge of this process and the history of events that have transpired to bring us to where we are, you learn more about how to maneuver it slowly over time. And that's, to me, the valuable skill to have is that patience, that opportunism, cleverness. It doesn't, it's not, it's not dumb to be a compromiser. Yeah. It's, you have to know and how to pick a shot and then take it. I've teased that, uh, you actually have to have both shoes on. You have to have a sprint and a marathon shoe because it is both equally on any given day at any given moment. Uh, the other analogy I use all the time that, that, uh, my staff makes fun of me for is that it's much like survivor, the TV hmm. show, and you've got to build these alliances and, at any given moment, your alliance may change on the next topic. Right. I might have to ally with you today to do Project X, but tomorrow, Project Y, I've got to go find a new team because you on my team today might have no interest in that next endeavor. And so, you know. And that's just it. This process is more than about the big bills. Mm -hmm. The big bills are going to cause these tribal instincts to, to happen, and that's probably a small part of the number of bills that you've seen go through here. Right. You, you, there are just so many things that can and could be done that it seems to me like a waste of an opportunity to focus only on those things that you're never, you know, it just, it just seems to me that the opportunities are always to be working. So at the end of the day, day's done. It's a beautiful day out today. What are you doing tonight? What are you, you going to go home and read a book? No, you know, I think I have a 19-year-old son okay. who lives with me. Uh, he is thinking about his college starting this fall. And so my, I think my time with him is limited and I enjoy, you know, family time. I do enjoy going outside and when the weather is like this, you know, maybe taking in a high school sporting event. I think there's a track meet later this afternoon that I might go check out. Nice. I'm looking forward to the Kaiser baseball coming up. Oh yeah? Yeah, well I'm a Giants fan and they're the farm club, so I'm, uh -huh. I'm looking forward to that. Oh yeah. So we talked a little bit again about engaging with people and, and how today it seems like more and more people have so personified their political ideology that it now is their identity. Having civil discourse and having appropriate debate to try and raise the level of understanding and, and trying to reach the right policy is so difficult because to tell anybody that you disagree with them, you are insulting them. And I guess my question to you is, how do we engage with people? How do we get people off of that track? How do we get people back to understanding that an idea isn't an identity and it can be malleable? Right. Wasn't the internet supposed to, wasn't social media supposed to solve all this? When we were young, when I was younger, you just thought, man, if there was a microphone, it's just like there's only so many microphones and... We just need to unleash the voices, and voices have been unleashed, that's for sure. And it makes me cringe now that, like you were saying, you 
your identity is wrapped up in your position on things. And that something that was said when you were 17 years old can be brought up 30 years later, and that's the secret to your character. Like, mm -hmm. no matter yeah. what has happened yeah. since then, that quote really reveals what that person is truly all about. I guess we've become such amateur psychologists that it's sort of depressing. The whole political discourse gets sort of grimy. Right. Distasteful. Yeah, this dynamic, though, that people have now that is so close their minds or their willingness to just even engage. And, and to the extent that, you know, they believe it so much that when they talk to you about your idea and it's different than theirs, they think you don't understand their idea because if you just got it, then surely you would agree with them. Right. So the fact that you disagree with beans, you don't understand. Right. Well, I wonder if, and here I have to rely on your experience over mine because I don't necessarily by my job do the work that you do of engaging with the constituencies. Right. I, I think I saw the term fact resistant. Mm -hmm. It's really challenging to come to terms. Democratic self-government relies upon a certain sense of goodwill towards people that you might not know, don't even like necessarily, but you just kind of give it a little bit of grace because yeah. we need each other and we'll, we'll survive this to get to you know that later. And I and I wonder if that's held in such high esteem like it is by me anymore. Well, I wonder, too, how much of that, and part of the reason why we're doing this podcast, to reach out to people and try and give insight into truly how that process works to get to an end result. Well, that's a very good question, and it leads to some very novel thoughts about the training process. One of the things we could start with and people should know about is in our office we have an honorary page program. That is, we'll take school kids you give us a kid for a day and we will take them through the process that they can see and participate in here in the legislature and see it from the inside. And they'll learn pretty quickly the important role of committees. And it's not just a word or some sort of like, you know, thing on a book, um, but what it, what it means for, to be sent to a committee and to have that committee have to refer it back out of committee with a vote. So you, all of a sudden the role of a committee chair becomes a pretty important, you understand how that legislator is very important at that moment in time for that piece of legislation. So we have an honorary page program that helps. We're trying to develop a more civics education about that very subject because I think democratic self-government requires an enlightened citizenry about the process as well as about issues. Um, one of the things we're also talking about is whether or not we may use the technology that we have, the internet and our websites, to have um, little videos, question, you know, multiple choice questions. We have a Facebook page uh, in the clerk's office. If you want to know the history of the chamber and the state symbols and take little quizzes, you can do that. It's not exactly what you're talking about. Uh, but those things are out there, and those are more good ideas that you're giving us. I mean, you're cool. You're on Twitter, too. We're on Twitter and Instagram. And Instagram, absolutely. We're I liked that a hip. few of your stuff. But what would be something about you that people would just be shocked to know or surprised? I really don't like coffee. What? I know this place runs on coffee. Oh my gosh, it really does. Don't have a taste for it. Um, maybe that's because you haven't tried Sister's Coffee up in Representative Bonham's office. <laughs> I've oh, actually wait. been to Sister's Coffee. I think that's a. F I love going to Sister's. Because it is just so, it's close enough, 
but it's far enough away that it feels like you've traveled a long way. I love that you brought up House District 59 and its beauty and sincerity and warmth. I mean, we'll be there for the Sisters Rodeo, always the second week in June. You know I'll be there, too, and I will have shopped over at Dixie's and got myself a new shirt. (laughs) Love Sisters. Okay, so I am fascinated. There have been a few stories that I've heard, but what if I just refuse to vote? What if I sit there on the floor and I just stare with righteous indignation about my desire to not vote? That happened, and there is a rule about it, and that happened. There was a legislator... I want to use the word John Lim, the name John Lim. I think that was the legislator. It was not while I was the chief clerk, but couldn't take the vote. It was caught you know, between two equally powerful impulses, I guess you could say, and just didn't vote, wasn't going to do it. And it sat there for hours and was pressure was put on him for hours. There was a requirement to do it, but how are you going to force somebody to do it? My understanding was that that's the reason why the rules now say that if you don't vote, your vote will be recorded as a yes, and you will be censured by the body. Fascinating. So I always thought the default should be no. Status quo should rule. You have to have a compelling reason to change a law or to introduce a law. Not necessarily. That's the compelling force behind the rule, though, is that you know you better make a decision because otherwise you're going to be recorded as a yes. Fascinating. Thank you so much for being here today. I appreciate you taking the time. I know it's a busy life that you live, much like uh, we experience here. Well, we give it to the legislature when you guys are in town. This is the first priority. So we're here when you're here. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. You're welcome. Yeah. And thank you, the listeners, for coming back by again. Main Street Politics. Remember, if you need to get a hold of us here in the office, 503-986-1459. Or our district office is 541-719-8745.